0: Turn your Bibles to the Lucan Gospel, Luke chapter 24. Open eyes and burning hearts, Luke 24. Let's read the first three verses. Follow along as I read. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. It would be hard to imagine anything more horrible than what the followers of Jesus had experienced. They had joined the pilgrims in proclaiming, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. Just days earlier, only to witness their would be Messiah, crucified between two criminals on a cross. Every hope they had that Jesus would release them from Roman oppression was lost. Every dream they had ever dreamt about living as a free people of God had turned into a nightmare as The crucified body of their Messiah was placed in a borrowed tomb. And now the Sabbath is over. And the women who stood last and longest at the cross are the first ones to hurry to help the buried body of their Lord. Jesus had been buried in haste. Because the Sabbath was approaching and the women had witnessed that the anointing of his body was rough at best and incomplete at worst. They noticed as they approached the tomb, having already prepared the spices to properly anoint the body of their Lord. The stone has been rolled away from the entrance. They can observe the emptiness of his place of burial. Look at verse four. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling apparel. The empty tomb apparently has no significant meaning for the women on their own. They arrive, they find the stone rolled away and the body missing, but they don't put two and two together. As is often the the case in scripture, When human minds cannot comprehend, it has to be explained by God's divine revelation. Two men, angels in the story, dressed in glowing white garments offer their explanation. Their glowing garments remind us of Jesus' transformed garments at his recent transfiguration. Luke further describes the angels as those who stood before them. This is language in the Gospel of Luke. When someone stands before you, it's a divine being. It's his Lucan language. Think back to Luke chapter two when we read, the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before the shepherds. In Luke, if someone stands before you suddenly, it's a messenger from God. The glory of the Lord shone around them. In Acts, another book authored by Luke, When Peter escapes from prison in Acts 12, there is an angel standing before him. It's Luke's way of communicating a divine visitation. The two men, dazzling garments, lightning white, stand before them. As we saw in Luke's story surrounding the beginning of Jesus, the birth, the angel has to explain or to reveal the real meaning behind the human circumstances. Remember the beginning of our story that the angel Gabriel had to come and explain and interpret what God was about to do? And now at the end of the story, angels of God show up to explain what God has already done in the resurrection of his son. The angels speak in unison. They meet the Jewish criteria of two witnesses to substantiate the count. Look at verse five. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was in Galilee? saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. As is often the case in Scripture, when one that is divine comes in contact with those of us who are weakly human, the women bowed their posture like Isaiah 6 or, or John in Revelation 1. And the angels pose the most important question in all of human history, why are you looking for the living one among the dead? He is not here. He is alive. Why in the world would you come to the graveyard to look for a living man, the angels are asking. And then they rebuke them with the word remember. Remember, look at verse six. Remember what he told you when he was in Galilee? Look at verse eight, and they remembered his words. How many times in Luke's gospel had Jesus told his disciples, here's the plan. I will suffer at the hands of sinful men and I will be crucified, a suffering Messiah. And three days later I will rise, but they would not hear it. They did not remember. He told them in Luke chapter nine, he told them in Luke chapter 18, had the disciples actually listened to the Lord, they would have come to the tomb expecting it to be empty, looking for a risen savior, looking for his pending and now present resurrection. But they did not. But in verse eight, though it took the nudging of angels, the women finally remember the words of the Lord and in the act of remembering, they also believe that he is the son of God, that he was crucified, that he fulfills the prophets as he rises again. Look at verse 9. They returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now there were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the Mary, the mother of James, and also the other women with them. They were telling these things To the apostles, remembering Jesus's predictions about his resurrection, the once doubting women now rise up and run to the 11 and to others gathered there and they tell them, the tomb is empty. The angels have told us he is alive. Unless we as readers think that Luke is somehow generalizing or fantasizing, he gives you a list of the women who go to the tomb, they're still alive, go ask them. Look at their names, Mary from the city of Magdala, Joanna, Mary, James's mother, and the rest. I want you to notice the women keep telling. The women run and they report. It's an imperfect tense to the verb. The women were insisting on the marvelous story about the resurrection of Jesus was true. Look at verse 11. And those words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe. The women approached the tomb and they don't expect to find Jesus alive. They've gone with the spices and the ointment ready to prepare a body for a proper burial. And even if they hear from the angels, they finally believe, they remember and they believe and they go and tell the 11. And you think the 11 now would cue in to what Jesus has said. But the biggest skeptics of today are the very followers of Jesus. The disciples, even being formed by the women, they refuse to believe. Notice verse 11. It appeared to them as nonsense. It's a word used for the delirious speech of those who are sick. Now don't miss what's taking place here. Jesus' own disciples are the first skeptics of the empty tomb. They didn't plan, they didn't steal the body, they weren't looking for a resurrection. In fact, even when the women say, the angels have told us he is alive, Jesus' closest followers still don't get it. Maybe you're here this morning and you yourself are a skeptic or maybe you're watching by way of television and you're not sure about today in this empty tomb business. You're in really good company. That's where the women started as they journeyed to the tomb ready to find a body for burial. That's where Peter is in the story, that's where John, that's where all the disciples are in the story. No one remembered his words on their own and no one was looking for a resurrection. So if you yourself this morning are a skeptic about the empty tomb, you are just like those closest to Jesus. They refused to believe, even the report of the eyewitness of the women Maybe you refuse to believe today too. Look at verse 12. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only. He went away to his home, I want you to look at this word, marveling at what had happened. Refusing to accept the word of excited women possibly delirious women. Peter rises up and runs to the tomb and he finds the claws, but he finds no corpse. And notice what's described. He marveled. Now, if we've been going through Luke's gospel, you know by now that in Luke's gospel, if someone marvels, they're beginning to put it together. And Luke's gospel, if someone marvels, they're beginning to have insight It happens in Luke 1, and Luke 2, and Luke 4, and Luke 8, and Luke 11, and Luke 20, and Acts 2, and Acts 4, all written by Luke. When someone marvels, they're beginning to have a spiritual insight. Peter marvels at what he's seen. Peter begins to believe. What follows in verses 13 through 32 is too long for me to read. Let me summarize it for you. This particular account is only found in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus shows up as a mysterious man there There's a a couple, Cleopas and perhaps his wife. They are traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus, seven miles away. And they're talking about all the things that have happened to Jerusalem, about the crucifixion, the report of the empty tomb. And they're just conversing with each other and they're downcast. And they say to this mysterious traveler, who we know is Jesus, but they cannot see. Their eyes are blinded by God. They cannot yet see that it is Jesus. Jesus. They say, we followed him and we were hoping that he was the one, but in the end he was crucified. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? What sort of things are you talking of And they replied to him, are you the only one in the whole environs of Jerusalem who haven't heard about the rabbi who was crucified, the one who was going to set us free? We were hoping he was the Messiah. Where have you been, friend? You're in Jerusalem. How did you miss this? They start walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus with Jesus, a seven mile walk and all the way Jesus starts with Moses and the law of the Taurus. And he explains how the prophets had spoken of all that happened into his life and how even what's happening now is a fulfillment of scripture. He's teaching them, opening to them how all that Jesus is and all that Jesus does is a fulfillment of the scriptures of the Jews. They finally reach Emmaus, it's getting dark, and Jesus says he's got to go on, he's got further to go. And they beg him, won't you stay with us? Won't you dine?" it's getting late, my friend. And an oddity of oddities, Jesus takes over the, the meal. He acts like he's a host at their house. He says the blessing, he breaks the bread. And when he breaks the bread, Luke says God opens their eyes. And they see that it is He. They're once crucified and now resurrected Messiah. In the moment their eyes are open, Jesus disappears from their midst. He vanishes. And they look at each other and they say, you know, my heart was strangely warmed when we were walking with him and he was explaining the scriptures. Now we know. And they run back seven miles where they just left Jerusalem and they go and they find the 11 and the others gathered together. Look at verse 33 of the text. They arose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them saying the lord has really risen and he's appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experience on the road and how he was recognized by them and the breaking of the bread. Having discovered the resurrected Jesus, the disciples run to Jerusalem and when they get there, before they can utter a word about this stranger who traveled with them, who broke the bread and blessed it, and their eyes were open. before they can say a word, they say, we know, he appeared to Peter. Peter has seen him. The skeptic Peter has seen him with his own eyes. How comforting it must have been to learn that Jesus feared not only to them but also to the others. And now there begins to be a mounting evidence to the empty tomb of Jesus. The women go, the women see the emptiness, they see the divine beings. They are told, though they don't see Jesus himself, the Disciples on the road to Emmaus, they see Jesus and their eyes are opened through the breaking of the bread and now he's appeared to Peter and the miraculous of all miracles is about to occur. Even while they're standing there in that room, Jesus appeared to them, look at verse 36. And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. If there's any doubters in the room before, when he stands there, there are no doubters now. But they were startled and frightened. They thought they were seeing a spirit. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Come look, my scars, you need to touch them, come here. My feet, come, touch me. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. They were marveling, verse 41, All of a sudden, while the disciples on the road to Emmaus are sharing and they're telling them about Peter's vision of the risen Lord and they're sharing their vision, all of a sudden, Jesus, not hindered by the walls, he all of a sudden is in their midst and they are terrified and they think they're seeing a ghost and he says, no, it's flesh and blood. Come and touch it if you need to touch it. Give me some fish to eat. I'm hungry. I'm flesh and bone." There are no doubters in the room now. Jesus explains to them that they are to go and tell all the nations. Look at verse 44, and these words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, all the things which are written about me, notice he covers it all, the law, the prophets and the Psalms, all the scripture has pointed to this very moment Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed, verse 47, in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my father upon you that you will stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. They're terrified at first. Our gospel began with terrified people. Zacharias is terrified, Mary is terrified, and Gabriel shows up to inform them. But like Zacharias at the beginning of the story, the disciples must now move from fear and doubt to faith and courage. And as he began this gospel in Nazareth, showing them that the prophet Isaiah was speaking of him, that today the scripture's fulfilled in your hearing. The kingdom of God has arrived. He ends his story by showing them that the Jewish scriptures apply to everything in his life. Moses applies to my life. Isaiah applies to my life. The songs of the Psalter apply to my life. they have said, The son of man, and now he calls himself the Messiah, must suffer and then indeed rise again. He calls them to repent. He calls them to repent as a response to the gospel. Look at verse 47. Repentance for forgiveness of sin should be claimed in his name to all the nations, not just Israel but all to the ends of the earth. I know how the women responded to the empty tomb. They doubted, it meant nothing to them until they saw the dazzling angelic being say, why are you looking for the living one among the dead? I know how Peter and the 11 responded when the women told them "We, we went to the tomb, the stone was moved, the angel said they didn't believe. I know in the end how they respond when the living Lord stands in their midst and they see the scars, they respond in faith. They're giving the command to go and tell everyone, Messiah must suffer and rise again. But what I want you to know, what happened this day 2,000 years ago is not about the empty tomb of one rabbi who had 12 followers and the women who followed him. That's, you've missed the story altogether if that's what you think that it is. The story is about the beginning of the age of the resurrection. A restoration of all that God intended. Death is a result of our sin and he died for our sin that we don't have to die. Our very baptism means that we die with him and we rise with him. What happened on that day is not the empty tomb of a solitary rabbi, but rather the beginning of the very age of the resurrection which the prophets have spoken of. So that he is the first fruit of the resurrection. All who've called Jesus Lord will follow. How certain is your empty tomb? If you've called him Lord, it's more certain than his was because he's already started the process. He died for your sins 2,000 years ago and he rises for your eternal life. And I know the last two years so many of you have stood at gravesides. It's been your mom and your dad and your grandparents, a husband, a wife, a brother, a sister, a child. How hard it has been so many times to stand at gravesides recently and reminded today that those who believe in him shall never die. Why are you looking for the living one among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. He's alive. Go and tell the disciples, start in Jerusalem, tell the whole world, death has been defeated. Jesus is alive. Oh God, Our hearts are strangely warm, like the hearts of those disciples on the road to Emmaus. We have buried our family these years. Our hearts are empty at their missing seat at the table this afternoon. And we thank you that we worship a Jesus who not only died, but also rose again from the dead. Father, we may know Oh, yes, we may know that if we die with him, likewise, we rise with him. Amen.